Jesus, we cry out to you right now. We cry out to you, Lord. God, I, I just pray that you touch that person who uh, is hurting right now in the name of Jesus. I pray that you heal that person right now in the name of Jesus. Touch, touch his knee, touch her throat, touch his heart, touch her stomach, touch his head, touch that elbow. In the name of Jesus, you are the Lord of the body. I pray also, Lord, for that person who came to church that's uh, brokenhearted. Would you comfort them in the name of Jesus? May they sense your presence in the name of Jesus. I pray for that person who is held bondage right now by spiritual forces, demonic forces even. And I pray you set that person free right now in the name of Jesus. Devil, you have no place in this house. And we rebuke you and cast you out in the name of Jesus. You have no business in our homes or with our families or in the marriages. We rebuke you in the name of Jesus. We cast out that spirit of fear, that spirit of doubt, that spirit of lust, that spirit of drunkenness in the name of Jesus. And we turn to you, Jesus. You are the author and finisher of our faith. You are Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and you alone are worthy. And we worship you, Jesus, the only one who's worthy to open up that book. Minister to that person who's far from you, that person who came to church but hasn't heard you in a long time. Would you speak to them in the name of Jesus? Would you encourage and strengthen would you remind that person who's just not sure about a lot of things right now that you are Lord? So Jesus, move here every way you want. Moving that person who just doesn't believe in the name of Jesus. I'm so grateful, God, that you love us even when we don't love you. I'm grateful that your mercy is greater than our mercy and your compassion is greater than our compassion. I'm grateful your forgiveness is greater than even our ability to forgive people here in this world. I'm grateful you're the God of new beginnings, and I'm just grateful, God, that you're a God who never gives up on us, Lord, and that as long as we have breath, there's still a chance. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. So have your way here in this service. I already sense your presence here, God, and I pray that you just anoint this message. Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me. We worship you, Jesus, and, and you're the rock star. You're the one we worship. You're the one that deserves all of our praise. We're here right now because of your grace and your mercy, and we have breath in our lungs because of your grace and your mercy. We give you our problems. We give you our worries. We give you our burdens. We cast them on you. We can't carry them, Lord. We can't carry them. Thank you, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. For the kingdom, right? For the kingdom. Hey, yeah, uh, turn to someone and just, just tell them Jesus loves you. Can you do that? And then you can have a seat. Thank you so much for being here at church. <clears throat> it's a powerful name. Powerful name. Appreciate our worship team leading us. Um, 
One more, baby. One more. One more. I'm excited. Yeah, some of you are like, are the Broncos playing? What are we talking about? Yeah, I'm, I love underdogs, and I love the fact that the Nuggets are like, it's the first for everything. I just, I enjoy that. There's that part of me that I like the underdogs. I'm always cheering for the underdogs, and I like the way they, they play together. So, um, you think God really, like, cares who wins? Do you think, do you think, should, you know, I don't know. <coughs> There's probably greater things, unless his will is going to be determined um, so anyway, let's talk about something else. Uh, hey, uh, before we jump in the message, I want to share with you uh, what our church did, what your church did. I love it when I talk to people, and, and when they talk about Thorn Creek Church, they don't tell me your church. They say our church, and they say it like naturally. That's when I know, oh, they're in. You know, they're not, they're not visiting anymore. I, can, I love it when they say our church or my church, when they say that. I, I, love, I love hearing that. But uh, here's what your church did. Uh, this last week, we went to an organization called Beyond Home, and it's located in, in Arvada. And uh, we had quite a few people from Thorn Creek there. And they had like a festival kind of thing. And uh, we just went and, and served and loved on them. There were a lot of games for the kids, and, and, uh, uh, and it was just a lot of fun. And we had so many volunteers, they said, hey, we need help painting a house. So we split up the volunteers, and some people went to, uh, to help out with the festival, and other people were painting the house. And uh, this organization helps low-income families get on their feet and helps them with life skills as well. So uh, it was just super cool seeing there, I mean, being there. So just want to thank all of you who participated in uh, at Beyond Home, we appreciate you so much. Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, I'll tell you what, God is moving in such a beautiful, beautiful way. You know, at, we, last week uh, we we had our second or third week at the Innovage campus. That's that senior adult community right behind Super Target and Barnes and Nobles on Washington and 120th. So that building right there, uh, there's it. it a lot of the population, a lot of senior adults are there. And we've been doing church there at 11 o'clock. In fact, in, in like what time is it? It's 9.37. At 11 o'clock, we're going to do church over there again. And they put it on in their theater room. And we sent Thorn Creekers over there. And it's been amazing. I mean, there's like I said last week, there was someone who showed up there who hadn't been in church in like 10 years. And a lot of them, they don't, they don't know how to put on or download a worship service on their you know mobile device or electronic device. So they can now just go down the elevator be part of church, super cool. And in fact, last weekend, Pastor Jeremy was there, and uh, uh, they, on their own, you know what they said? They said, um, where do we put our offering? These are senior adults who have a fixed income. And they're asking, what do we do with our offering? And it never dawned on us to collect offering over there. <laughs> we were like, well, I don't know where to put our offering. We didn't have offering buckets or plates or anything. And you know what they used to collect offering? A coffee filter. They passed around a coffee filter to collect their offering. Talk about a widow's mite. Beautiful. And I thought, wow, and that look how God is moving. This is a, a community of senior adults that are many times are overlooked or forgotten. And 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 God is using this church to minister to them. Your church. Say my church with me. Say my church. Oh, see, didn't that feel good? Say my church again. I know some of you are like, I'm not sure if I can say that right now. 
All right. Hey, one more thing. Uh, Why Not Weekend is coming up. One more thing. Why Not Weekend? Why Not Weekend is, uh, um, why not? It's not a typo. K-N-O-T. What is why not? It's exactly what it sounds like. It sounds like a wedding. That's what it is. So Why Not Weekend is a time when we, uh, let me just preface this by saying our desire is for you to know God's word and for you to understand um, what it means to walk by faith, what it means to walk with God in today's world, in today's generation. And uh, my heart's desire is for you to be, put yourself in a place of blessing. Uh, your life and all the categories of your life, work and relationships and marriage and dating, whatever, it all matters to God. And so what we decided to do was we, we recognized, hey, you know what? There are people at Thorn Creek who are in a relationship that should be married. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe, maybe that's you. You're playing house, and you've not tied the knot. And uh, maybe God's stirring you and saying, okay, it's time. It's time. Let's get this right under the eyes of God. You've been engaged for 10 years. It's long enough. You're living together. Whatever the story is, and, and now you've been in it for so long, maybe you've just gotten comfortable <laughs> Maybe the urgency for marriage is no longer there. So what we decided to do is we need to have a weekend to marry people who are in a situation where they know they need to get married. Last time we did this was a number of years ago, and we married several several couples. We actually married seven couples um, many years ago. And, uh, and we're marrying people again July 29 and 30. So if this is you, take a screenshot of that QR code and sign up and let us know you were interested. This is probably one of the first times you've ever heard this in a church, I'm guessing. I don't hear this a lot in a church, but it's a good thing to get right in the eyes of God in every corner of your life. And uh, you know, right now, we have two couples that have signed up. Isn't that exciting? We have two couples that are signed up. That's a big deal. And I know there's more of you out there. You know who you are. If you're sitting by someone, just take your phone out and take a picture of it and say, we'll talk later. And <laughs> but I want to make sure you're part of that. So, hey, uh, I want to start off with this question as we jump into this message here. What do you want to be when you grow up? How many times have you heard that question? What do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, in elementary school, right? That's kind of a big deal in elementary school. I remember when my kids were were younger, and they would ask that question. And even when they graduate from elementary school, they might put it on the screen. They want to be a doctor. They want to be a policeman. They want to be a fireman. They want to be a nurse. They want to be a teacher. They want to be a dolphin trainer. You know, whatever it is. It's like there's something like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And how many of you are, like, older and you're still trying to figure that out? You know, you're still trying to figure out, you know, you're, like, in your 50s and 60s. You're like, I'm not sure what I want to be when I grow up. But that's a question we're asked early on, early on. And uh, it, it's a question really about purpose, and that's the title of today's message is Finding My Purpose. I want to read this, uh, this definition of purpose. It says, the reason for which something is done or created or for which something exists you know, there's been uh, research done on people who understand their purpose. They have meaning in their life. There was a, there was a survey done with 7,000 adults, and they found out that people who did not have meaning in their life were twice as likely to die prematurely, people who did not have meaning. And uh, people who had a sense of purpose, check this out, reduced 
the incidence of cardiovascular events like heart attack and stroke. They simply had a purpose. You wake up in the morning and you have a purpose. You wake up in the morning and you're thinking, I've got to do this. I've got to work on this. In fact, um, our, one of our newer generations, Gen Zers, any Gen Zers in the house of so this church has a lot of Gen, Gen Zers, these are those who were born between 1994 and 2001. They're also called the purpose generation. Did you know that? In fact, there's this large study of over 2,000 re uh, respondents, and the researchers found out that for the first time, we have a generation prioritizing purpose in their work. For the first time. The older generations, okay, so what is my pay? What are, what are the benefits? What are the bennies? What does a retirement plan look like? I mean, those are the things that we think. The newer generation, they want to know this. They want to know, is this socially responsible? Is it human-centered? Is it ethical? Is it making a difference in our world? Pretty crazy, the shift that has happened. And, and if you're in the HR world or if you're working with Gen Zers, you just need to know that's pretty high up there for them. It's not so much the retirement plan. It's how am I making a difference in this world? That's new. First time ever, the purpose generation. First time ever. In the church world, we say, what is God's will for your life? That's what we say. What is God's will for your life? And there's this idea behind this belief that God is behind everything. Like God is behind the events and circumstances of your life. And God has a plan for you. There's this concept that there's things that you could do that could only be accomplished if God was in it. Think about that. God wants to use you in a divine, supernatural way that impacts other people. When God uses you, it doesn't only benefit you, it benefits others, and you join his plan. You join his work and what he's doing. So in the church world, we say, what is God's plan for your life? It doesn't have anything to do with your SAT scores. It doesn't have anything to do with where you live, whether you have a two-car garage or three-car garage or what year of car you drive or, or where you went to school or, or whatever. It doesn't have anything to do with your IQ. It's entirely dependent on your relationship with God. It's this idea that you could be part of something bigger than you. Think about that a little bit. You could be part of something bigger than you that will actually echo into eternity. Now that's, that's I mean, that's inviting, isn't it? Just a little bit that, that you, you know, God wants to use you. And that's crazy for me because I think about my life and I think about who I am and I know I have feet of clay, <laughs> I know I'm not perfect. This is a church for people who don't have it all together, don't you? I mean, I mean, aren't you aware of that? I mean, you know, sometimes we can look at ourselves and we say, there's no way God can use me. And you might minimize what God wants to do, but it's in your weakness that he is strong. It's in your weakness he is strong. And as I thought about this message, you know, we're doing this this summer. We're going through transitions. And during the summer months, one of the things, one of the things we, we do is we talk about, okay, I'm going to, it's time to transition to something else. And, and sometimes we're trying to figure out, what does God want me to do? 
it's the summertime, and I'm going to try to figure this out. In the midst of vacations, I want to, what does God want me to do? Where do I, what does he want me to work? What does he want me to go to, does he want me to go to school? Should I get in this relationship? Whatever it is, what's God's purpose? As I thought about this, there's a, there's a, a, a character in the Bible. Her name is Esther. Anybody know this gal, Esther? Um, you can read about her story in the Old Testament, the book of Esther. There's uh, 10 chapters in there, and you find her story after the book of Nehemiah. And a little bit about Esther. Esther, uh, this whole scene is during the Persian Empire, period. It's right around 539 B.C. And in this scene, it's, the story is backdropped um, behind um, the return of the Israelites from Babylonian exile, where they were evicted from the promised land, they were evicted to Babylon, and then now they're coming back home. So it's about 100 years or so after they come back from Babylonian exile. And some Jews went to Jerusalem, and, but other Jews stayed in Persia, in this, uh, the capital city known as Susa. So you have these Hebrews that are living in a pagan city and, in Susa, and, and they're there. And uh, the book of Esther is so interesting. It's, you have this woman who, uh, it, what's interesting about the book of Esther is God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. In, in the Bible, the book of Esther, 10 chapters, God's never mentioned at all. And there's this one verse in the book of Esther that implies prayer. And that's it. And we'll actually look at that verse in a little bit here. But uh, the book of Esther is interesting. We don't know the author either. We don't know the author of the book of Esther. But it's littered with these, like, uh, signs and, and coincidental ironies throughout the whole book. Where you're like, hmm, that's interesting. Well, I wonder, wonder why that happened. Oh, wow, that happened. And because that happened, this is happening it's ironies and signs. It's like the author just wanted to show you the signs and wanted you to connect the dots. And what I like about that is sometimes we can look at our life like that. We can look at our life and say, gosh, why did she do that? Or why did he do that? Or I got let go from a job and why did that happen? This doesn't make any sense. And why, did, why, why didn't this happen? I thought this was going to happen and it didn't happen. Or why is this relationship now you know, like this, and I, I thought it would be different, and now it's not. And, and there's sometimes in life we, we just kind of wonder, okay, God, help me make sense of this whole thing. I don't understand what's happening. And it's good to look at circumstances and to be a student of the work of God. I didn't say this last night. I should have said it. It's good to look at your life and, and just be a student and say, okay, how is God going to use that? Oh, God used that for this. And this isn't by accident. This is on purpose. And God brought me to, and over and over, it's just good to be a student of the work of God. There's some characters in the book of Esther. You have a, you have a character named Mordecai. Mordecai. This is Uncle Mordecai. And he's a godly man. He's a godly man. Um, his niece is Esther. And in fact, she becomes queen at a very young age. Uh, some Bible scholars say as early as 14, 16 years old, and she becomes this queen, and it's through a, a baddie, a, a baddie, gosh, pray for me, a body, uh, uh, beauty, beauty pageant, that's what I was trying to say. 
Somebody's not praying for me. Pray for me. A beauty pageant. And uh, she's elevated to this position, to status. She's, she's like, she's a knockout. I don't know what she looks like, but she is a beautiful, beautiful young woman. And she becomes the queen. And, and all of a sudden, it's this position of influence. And there's this villain in this whole story named Haman. Haman's this villain that you read about. The guy's not a Jew. He hates Jews. In fact, he's behind this decree um, to assassinate, to murder Jews. And he actually has a date. And he convinces the king. The king, that guy just likes to drink. He's a drunk all the time. And any opportunity to party, he's going to party. Any opportunity to celebrate, you know, hey, let's celebrate the Nuggets won game two. You know, let's party hard. You know, I mean, that's just this king. And, and he really, uh, people push him over, especially like a guy named Haman. So you have these characters, uh, Xerxes is his name, the king. You have these characters in there, and let's just jump at Esther chapter 4, um, verse 8. There's this uh, edict about, you know, to assassinate all the Jews. Mordecai's behind it. Mordecai's the one pushing the agenda. He convinces the king, let's kill all the Jews. And it all has to do because this other guy named Haman chose not to not to kneel down uh, in front of him, and, and it really bothered him. So here, check it out. Uh, verse 8, Mordecai gave Hathak. Hathak is like the middleman. Hathak is the middleman, and he's really Esther's, like, associate or helper or, or runner, so to speak. Mordecai gave Hathak a copy of the decree issued in Susa. They called for the death of all Jews. It was like, check it out. Hathak, I want you to take this to Esther. Look, all the Jews are about to die. He asked Hathak to show it to Esther and explain the situation to her. He also asked Hathak to, to direct her to go to the king to beg for mercy and plead for her people. So Hathak, uh, Mordecai has an idea, and he's like, okay, there's a date. There's a, a sentence date where all of the Jews are going to be massacred. And, and Mordecai's like, I have an idea. Esther, who's a Jew, but nobody knows she's a Jew except Uncle Mordecai and others, but the king doesn't know she's a Jew. And, 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 and Mordecai's idea is, Esther, sweetheart, baby girl, <laughs> we need you to go to the king. You have position. We need you to go to the king on behalf of all the Jews, and we need you to beg for mercy, and plead. So Hathak, uh, Hathak returned to Esther with Mordecai's message. Then Esther told Hathak, here's her response, to go back and relay this message to Mordecai. All the king's officials and even the people in the provinces know that anyone who appears before the king in his inner court without being invited is doomed to die unless the king holds out his gold scepter. And the king has not called for me to come to him for 30 days. So this is a big deal. This king of Persia, at this time Persia's, I mean, incredibly big. It's the empire. It's the Roman empire, so to speak. And Esther knows if I go uninvited, I can die. I can die. There's no party crashers <laughs> in uh, Queen, uh, King Xerxes' house. There's nobody. You, if you show up, 
you were invited. There's no plus ones, nothing like that. It, it's like you've got to be invited. And Esther understands the gravity of showing up and, and going to the king. Verse 12 says, so Hathak gave Esther's message to Mordecai. And then verse 13, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. I think Esther, uh, I mean, we, if we can read between the lines just a little bit, I mean, she's living large. She's in the palace. I have uh, this vision of her being fed grapes or something like that and someone waving and fanning her with a big palm or branch or something like that. I mean, her, she's got security. She's got a retirement plan. Everything is fine with her. She, her quality of life is way up here right now. I mean, she has escaped poverty, and, and, and it's easier. When you're in a situation like that, it's very easy to be self-centered, self-absorbed, only concerned about you. It's very easy, and you can look at other people who maybe aren't as fortunate or less fortunate, and you can look at them and like, well, I hope you make it, and not feel any burden to help them out. And Mordecai is looking at Esther, and he recognizes Esther's just not there. Esther doesn't understand the gravity of the situation. She doesn't understand what's at stake at all. And he said, just because you're in the palace, don't, don't believe that you're not going to be one of those that's going to be killed because they're going to find out that you're a Jew. And you're going to be killed just like everyone else. Verse 14, Mordecai says this. If you keep quiet at a time like this, Deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. Now, think about that a little bit. Look at the will of God. He's telling her, you know what? You can do nothing. And if you do nothing, God's still going to move. He's still going to work. He's still going to save. He's still going to redeem. There's nothing that can stop the purpose of God. However, there's a cost, but you and your relatives will die. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? I mean, like, your willingness to obey God impacts other people. Your willingness to say yes to God impacts your children. Your willingness to say yes to God impacts your loved ones. Your willingness to say yes to God impacts, perhaps, children that haven't even been born yet. Wow. You want to impact your third and fourth generation? Commit to God today. And, and uh, Mordecai's trying to help Esther understand this situation. And, and then check it out. Here's the question. Then he just like drops this question on her lap. And this is the question that rocks her head. I want us to read it out loud and read it with some boldness. So it starts off with the word who. So let's go. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen? One more time. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this? And I think that question just kind of lodged in her head. I think Mordecai was saying, um, you know what, maybe this is an accident. Maybe you being in a position as queen wasn't entirely about your resume. 
Maybe it's not entirely about how pretty you are. <laughs> maybe it's not all about you. Maybe, maybe there's a God that's pulling the strings, and maybe there's a bigger purpose behind this, and maybe, just maybe, you're in that position because God wants you in that position, and God knew this day would be coming. Maybe. Let me just blow you away just a little bit. What if God brought you to church today to hear this message for such a time as this, and there's more at stake than you realize? What if your response, your willingness to trust God right now is so, there's so much weight behind this. Your willingness to turn to him with all of your heart. And there's so much at stake right now. And right now, God has you here because he loves you and he cares about you for such a time as this. And you don't know what's happening in the future. And what's happening in your life right now is entirely dependent on whether or not you receive God's word right now. Some of you picked that up. What if? And that's what, God bless you, that's what Mordecai is saying to Esther. He's saying, you know what? What if? Stop eating grapes for a little bit. <laughs> what if? Maybe there's a reason. And I look at this question. Who knows? Hey, perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. And there's some thoughts that I want to share with you that God showed me. First of all, this. God's purpose is in your problem. God's purpose is in your problem. So when we find ourselves in problems, what do we do? I want to fix it, right? Especially men, you know what I'm talking about. You got a problem, I want to fix it. That's what we do. In fact, we may not even pray. We just want to fix. That's our first impulse. We want to do that. And typically, all we think about is, okay, I'm in this problem, so I need, I need money. That's what I need. That's going to solve my problem situation. I need a job. That's the way I need that. I, I, need, I need an out. I'm looking for a door. I'm looking for that. I'm in this problem kind of thing. And you might, you might find yourself in a problem and you might say things like, why is this happening to me? Why am I sick? Why am my half of my face paralyzed? Why am I going through this? this why did I get laid off? Why, did I, why was I hurt? Why did this happen to me? Why did I have this ac accident? Why am I suffering, and, and we can be caught up in those whys. And it's very easy for us when, we, when we're caught up in problems to view ourselves as a victim. It's very easy to look at ourselves and say, boy, everybody's out to get me, or I'm at the end of all the bad luck, and this is happening to me, and, and woe is me. I mean, it's easy to do that. It's very easy. But did you know sometimes God allows you to go through a time of pressure and testing because he wants to see what's in your heart. Problems have a way of exposing our faith, our doubt, our character. That's what problems do. They squeeze us. They squeeze us, and we see what's in, and sometimes, guys, if we can just be honest, sometimes we can look at, you know, what comes out is like we're not happy about it. You know what I mean? Have you ever seen that side of yourself, and you're like, I hope nobody else sees this side of me. So problems do. It's a problem too. And problems are a part of life. Wayne Cordero, um, he's a pastor in Hawaii. Um, he said this, life is like a sailboat. You're either ruled by the rudder or you're ruled by the rocks. Isn't that true? Because rocks are just part of life. You know that. 
I mean, Jesus told the disciples, go to the other side, and I'll meet you there. You think he knew there was going to be a storm? Sometimes God allows us to go to situations and places, and you're like, this is hard. But God, you knew. You knew. So instead of saying, I mean, it's good to say, God, deliver me from this problem, but look at that problem as an avenue, as a path for a greater purpose. Light shines best in darkness. Light shines best in darkness. And when you go through problems in life and you hold on to your faith, you hold on to your trust in God, you keep going to church, you keep praying, you keep crying out, you know what? Your faith is louder. Your faith weighs more. I'll, I'll listen to someone who walks with a limp and still loves Jesus. I'll listen to a pastor who's been hurt over and over and over and over and over and over, and every weekend he still gets on stage and he preaches the gospel, and he still loves people. That guy I'm listening to, you know what I'm talking about? I'll listen to that person who has lost a child, and they can still talk about the love of God. I'm going to listen to them. I'm going to listen to that person who's been through hell, and they're walking with Jesus and they love God, and they love people. I'm listening to them. I'm listening. Aren't you? Isn't it? I mean, don't you want to listen to that person? It's like that person who's been on the mountain and who has suffered, and they're still walking with God. I'd rather listen to them than someone who's never been through trials, never been through those kinds of hard stuff that just doesn't make sense. You know, life is kind of, life is interesting. If times are good, it's always good to say, yep, God's a good God, right? When you have money, when you, when things, when you have health, when you have strength, it's good to, I mean, yeah, God is good He's all the time. He's somebody, but what about, you know, the, the other side about that, that whole good side is it's easy to look at yourself. It's easy to trust others or, or trust yourself rather, um, but it's harder to recognize your need for God. That's the reason why in a lot of third world uh, countries, yeah, third world countries and, and situations, those people are desperate for God, aren't they? Why is that? Because they recognize their need for God. But when you're in a, a culture of self-sufficiency, it's harder. It's hard to recognize that. But when times are bad, when times are bad, it's easy to be angry and critical and question God's love. It's easier to see yourself as a victim. It's easy to but it's also easier to cry out to God for desperations because you know it's out of your hands. It's out of your hands. Um, <clears throat> Habakkuk says this, the prophet. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the field lies empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. That's just life, even though there's rocks. There's nothing more powerful that you can do. Let me just say this, guys. Jesus can help you with your marriage. Jesus can help you with your problems. Jesus can help you with your finances. Cry out to Jesus. Jesus can and save you and deliver you from addictions. Jesus can answer every problem in your life. All, you, all God wants you to do is turn to him. 
And, and the, the problem is not her or him or them. The problem is that sin living inside of you. It's that pride that lives inside of you. It's that stubbornness that lives inside of you. And God wants you to humble yourself and turn to him with all of your might, all of your strength, and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. I love, uh, I love Isaiah. He says this, but now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you, O Israel, the one who formed you, says, do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. Oh, that's a word for someone here today. When you go through deep waters, I will be with you. When you go through rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Somebody need that today? Our life is full of ups and downs. And one thing you have this promise is you have a God who will never leave you or forsake you. You have a God who's good on his promises. You have a God who's faithful, a God who will work through that problem. Second thing I want you to hear is this. Your purpose is bigger than your position. Your purpose is bigger than your position. One of the, the challenging things about us when it comes to position is a position can become part of your identity really easy. I'm Pastor Reuben. I'm a pastor of Thorn Creek Church. You know, you work at such and such, or you're so-and-so, and this is your title kind of thing. And I get that. We, that's just really natural, especially when you give so much of yourself. But you need to know that first and foremost, you're a child of God. You're made in the image of God. You were God's child. You were valuable, not because of your position, but because of your heart, because of your soul. Your soul belongs to God, and God loves you, and God cares about you. And if you can make that distinction, you'll look at people differently. You'll no longer look at them and assess value to them based on a position they hold. But you'll look at that person who flips burgers at McDonald's and you'll know they're just as important as that engineer who works at Tesla. They're both important. You look at that person who, you know, somebody came to church last night and, and they were just in, I don't know, you know, there was like paint all over their pants and shirt. I don't know, they were painting or something. And, and I was talking to him after service and, and, he, and the first time I talked to him and he said, yeah, Pastor, I'm, I'm so sorry about the way I came to church. And I was like, Man, you're perfect. I'm glad you're here. And he said, all right. He said, I'll come back. Well, so I said, well, good, come back. Come back. And so many times we assess so much of our, our self-worth based on what other people look like or what we look like. Don't do that. Every soul belongs to, every soul belongs to God. Uh, think about Mordecai. Mordecai was this guy who shows up to Esther, and he's the guy who's provoking her to purpose. Mordecai goes up to her and says, God has a plan, basically. God has, you're not here by accident, and you're in this position because God wants to use you, and you have a responsibility to do this, to save the Jews. You have a responsibility to do this. And initially, you, get the, you know, kind of get this vibe that Esther's not on board with Mordecai. 
She's not seeing it like that. She's enjoying her life. And, and Mordecai's like, no, 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 no. There's more for you. There's more for you. Do you have a Mordecai in your life? Do you have someone who prods you and says, God wants more of you. God wants all of you. God wants you to serve him. You know what? You should honor God with your life. Do you have a Mordecai in your life? You shouldn't be lying like that. You shouldn't, those words shouldn't come out of your mouth. What are you doing in this relationship, man? That's not right. Do you have a Mordecai in your life? Those are rare. Unfortunately, they're rare in the church. In the church, we just maintain an image. We try to look a certain way. And we don't want people to know our life, you know, behind that automatic garage door, behind our door. We don't want them to know who we really are. Did you know there's been studies related to purpose, that people who are in a mentoring relationship, they're being mentored by someone, actually have greater purpose in their life than someone who's not mentored by someone. Think about that. Think about that. Mordecai shows up and tells her, you know what? God wants to use you. I feel like a, a Mordecai sometimes. As a pastor, you know, I, I have a responsibility to proclaim the word of God. Um, but also as a pastor, I want to stir people to let God use them. And, and sometimes at church, I know it's going to be hard to believe, but I, I see people and I'm like, gosh, they're doing nothing in the church. They're using all their gifts and talents to make money for themselves. And the church could be so much stronger if they deployed their strengths and gifts for the local church, for his church, for his kingdom. So I'm like, I'll go up to someone and I'll talk to them and I'll say, hey, would you consider serving God? Would you consider, you know, would you come? Can you greet? Can you serve? Can you do a small group? Can, are you willing to help out in this area? And, and you might be surprised, but not everyone wants a Mordecai. Did you guys know that? You know who you are. It's like, there's the pastor. Let's come this way. Let's go over here. You know, it's like, I don't, he sees, okay, I know what he's going to ask, and I don't want to talk to him about that, so I'm just going to leave. I, I just want the blessings. I want to feel a little conviction in my heart, but I'm good. It's about what I get out of it. It's not what about what I give. If you ask me to give you something, if you ask me to give myself, I'm gone. It's not why I'm at church. It's not where I'm in church. I think when it, what keeps us from doing God's will, there's, there's a couple of things that keeps us from being obedient to God, that keeps us from stepping out and trusting God, or it keeps us from just, you know, serving God, whatever it is. Um, and I think Esther probably struggled with this a little bit. One is comfort. We worship the God of comfort. It's like, you know what? I feel pretty good sitting down right here. I'm good. This means I'm going to be inconvenienced, and, and I'm not going to be in control of my time, and I'm not going to be in control of the situation, and my goal in life is to control. Any control freaks out there? Your goal in life is to control. You want to control yourself. You want to control him. You want to control her, and that's your goal in life is to control. Don't try to control other people. You can't even control yourself. Why are you trying to control other people? Don't try to do that. And sometimes we can worship the God of comfort. The other thing we can worship is the God of complacency. I just don't care. I have no interest. I, 
just don't care. The God of complacency. You're okay with just focusing on yourself. Here's the last thing I want to share with you. You have a, for such a time as this moment. For such a time as this moment. Solomon said, for everything there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven. There's a season, the season you're in right now, there's a purpose. If you're in the midst of pain, there's a purpose in that, that God wants you to turn to him. If you're in the midst of a problem and there's chaos or whatever it is, there's a purpose behind that. There's a purpose. But you're driven by the rudder and not the rocks, right? You're driven by God. And you say, God, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm going to lean on you. And I'm going to trust that you're going to make it all clear. God, I know you're using this problem. I just believe you're going to work all things out for good for those who love the Lord. There's a book I'm reading called From Strength to Strength by Arthur Brooks. Arthur Brooks, he's a Harvard professor, and he's a behavioral uh, psychologist, and he's done studies on the prime of life kind of thing. And uh, he looked at uh, our ages, and uh, he discovered this. I'm wearing this shirt, so you might think I'm an athlete, so I'll share this with you. Athletes experience peak performance between the ages of 20 to 27. Anyone surprised? 20 to 27, that's when you're peak performers and athletes. Inventors and Nobel Prize winners typically find their greatest discoveries in their late 30s. Their greatest discoveries. The peak age for physicists is 50, and for chemists it's 46, and the peak age for medicine, or those who are in the medical field, is 45. So you might want to ask your doctor, can I get a younger doctor? Do you mind if I get a younger doctor? (laughs) For writers, decline sets in between the age of 40 and 45, and office workers, 45 to 54. So he goes so far to say your peak age, he calls it fluid intelligence. Fluid intelligence. He says your peak age when you're most creative is really in your 20s and 30s. And he says 39 is the tipping point. 39. Yeah, I'm a little older than 39. But he said after 39, there's something called crystallized intelligence. And that's when you use wisdom and discernment because you've seen some things. And he says if you keep trying to do life like you were in the 20s, you'll discover when you get older, it doesn't work. Your brain, your memory is not where it used to be. Hello. Your body is not where it used to be. Your physical strength is not where it used to be. So it's important for you to jump onto that other curve and say, okay, I recognize my season in life, and I'm going to now rely on wisdom in a greater way. In fact, those who are in that second curve, you know what they say a great job is for you? To be a mentor. To be a mentor, because you've been through some stuff. He says this, in the first half of life, ambitious strivers, check this out, ambitious strivers embrace a single formula for success. Focus single-mindedly. Work tirelessly, sacrifice personally, and climb the ladder relentlessly. Did I just describe your formula for success? It works until it doesn't. In the second half of life, you learn a life of grace, 
joy, and ever-deepening purpose. Isn't that good? Isn't that so true? You get to a certain age where you look at your life and you're like, you know what? That doesn't matter. All of a sudden, it's like money. It's like, mm, you know what? Driving that nice car, that's not that important for me anymore. You get to that place. Paul says, and we know that in all things, God worked together for good for those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Acts chapter 13, Luke says, now when David had served, this is King David, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. Check it out. When he had served God's purpose, he fell asleep. It's like there's nothing else worthy to live for. Let me say it like this. If you have breath, you have purpose. Inhale, exhale. If you have breath in your lungs, God has a purpose for you. If you have breath in your lungs, God has a purpose for you. Look at Esther's decision. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. This is the first sign of prayer, the first spiritual sign in this entire book. She, she recognizes, you know what? I think Uncle Mordecai is right. We need to pray. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. And then what does she say? If I must die, I must die. Wow. Is there any purpose of God in your life that you're willing to die for? Think about that a little bit. I'm not talking about your children. I'm not talking about that. Is there any purpose of God in your life that you're willing to die for? Wow. We got to read between the lines. At some point, Esther was looking at herself and she realized, you know what? This isn't all about me. This isn't all about my salary. This isn't all about the gold. This isn't all about the palace. This isn't all about status. This isn't all about God has a bigger purpose and I recognize God wants to use me and if I if I must die I must die. Wow. If it's not big enough to scare you then it's just not big enough. She recognized she recognized God's plan. Here's the, here's the prayer I want you to, I want to encourage you to say. Here's the prayer. I want you to say this prayer. God, what's your purpose in my life? You're going through a problem right now. Just say, God, this hurts. This is confusing. I don't know why this is happening, but what's your purpose in my life? If you're on the top right now, and you're getting the bonus checks and commissions and life is going well and you're just bringing in the money and you know a lot of cabbage and life is great i want you to say this prayer god what's your purpose in my life what's your purpose in my life what is it you want me from me what's your purpose god not god this is what i want you to do for me god what is your will for my life and you can break it down. I mean, Scripture in Thessalonians says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, to live a holy life. 
Jesus said, this is the will of the Father for you to believe in me. That's what Jesus said. This is the will of God for you to believe in me. What is God's will for your life? Boy, chew on that one. What is God's will for your life? What you're going through right now? What if right now, right now, wow, you were here for such a time as this? For such a time as this? Maybe it's a simple thing like God doesn't want you to lie anymore. God doesn't want you to steal anymore. God doesn't want you to treat your wife like that anymore. God doesn't want you to treat your husband like that anymore. God doesn't want you to say those things anymore. God doesn't want you to drink like that anymore. God doesn't want you to do that thing in the garage anymore. God doesn't want you to do that thing at 2 o'clock at night when everybody's sleeping anymore. God doesn't want you to do that at work anymore. Whatever it is, what is God's will for you? There's much at stake. Let me pray for you. God, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your love. And if you're ready to receive Jesus, would you just say, Jesus, right now I ask you to come into my heart. I ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Forgive me for my sins. I turn to you. I want to become a Christian right now. So take over my life. Others of you, you might need to say this. God, what is your will for my life? Help me, Lord. When I go through the fire, when I go through the waters, just be with me. Help me, Lord. Even though there's no grapes on the vine, I'm going to praise you, Lord. If I die, I must die. What is your will for my life? Have your way, God. I want to live a honor, God-honoring life before you, God. So have your way. If you want me to get this relationship right before your eyes, I'll do that. If you want to change my heart, change my heart, God. If you want to use me to share my faith with someone else, I'll do that. If you want me to ask for forgiveness, I'll ask for forgiveness. So what is it, God, you want? What is it, God? Lord, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. I've sensed your Holy Spirit as I've been up here preaching, and I've done my best, Lord, to communicate what you put on my heart. So, Lord, may it fall on good ground, good soil, and, and bear fruit. I pray for those who are making decisions today. I pray for every home. I pray, Lord, that you are glorified, Jesus, in every heart and every home. I pray people turn to you with repentant hearts, Lord. And we choose to worship you in the midst of the fire. We choose to worship you. We choose to turn to you and we lean on you, God, in the midst of our problems, our valleys and mountains. We choose to turn to you. I want to pray for those who are about to give in a little bit their tithe, their offerings. Bless them, Lord. You are the God who provides. So I ask that you bless them exponentially in a way that uh, is unexplainable because we know we can never outgive you. 
and we use our finances, it's come from you, Lord. It's not ours. You're the one who's responsible for the blessings in our life. So we just honor you with it. I pray, God, for your will to be done in every way. Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing in this church. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And help the nuggets to win, Lord. In your name I pray, amen.